We need a real theme song, because this is getting fucking old. <laughs> not for me, it's not. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of Vertigo Voices. I'm still sick. <laughs> but we're still here. Hi, everybody. I'm Colby. I'm Sophia. And... We're talking about fucking Vertigo stuff today. How much Vertigo are we going to be talking about? So much Vertigo. So much Vertigo. don't even believe the amount of Vertigo that we're going to pump into your ears. <laughs> Today's episode, all Vertigo, all the time. Holla, holla. <laughs> Vertigo, go. So right off the bat, we've got some news. Vertigo, hot off the presses. The news that we always do. I can't remember... I can't remember if we gave this name. I'm, I'm losing steam already. <laughs> can't keep that up. So, um, we uh, have some news. It's not news. I finished the Sandman audio. <laughs> That's news in a sense. I, I read that on BuzzFeed. <laughs> Tell us all about it. I finished Sandman audio. It was fucking awesome. I said a couple weeks ago when I first discussed listening to it that I was pretty sure it was the best audio drama I've ever listened to, and that is 100% the case. Now, again, I've listened to a lot of audio stuff over the years, and this was fucking amazing. Great cast, great sound effects, great flow, 100% like accurate to the comic stories. Very little was changed. Um, in fact, I could only spot, like, I think two or three lines that were changed oh, wow. from the first three volumes of Sandman. Granted, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going through the fine-tooth comb, but I do recall in Season of... No, not Season of Mist. In Doll's House, uh, I recall Neil Gaiman actually talking about this. There, so in Doll's House, there's the whole subplot with the serial killer convention. Yeah. In that storyline, you get a few different points of view of the different serial killers around there. Like, they're talking about their process and when they fucking kill people. And they're talking, uh, there's that big fat guy, Funland, who talks about how he uh, um, kills people at an amusement park. And there's this one dude that talks about, like, the first time he ever killed someone. And he talks about like, his history with, with masturbating and, like, seeing nudie mags and, like, you know, he used to jerk off. But DC wouldn't allow Neil Gaiman to say masturbating or jerk off. So instead, he says something in the comic like, like, yeah, I'd get uh, overwhelmed and I'd have to go in the bathroom and look at the magazines, blah, blah, blah. Well, in, in the audio drama, he just says, yeah, I masturbated. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> Being a little more progressive there, DC. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was funny. But Neil Gaiman had said that when he submitted that issue to DC, he got a note back like on the cover that just said, people do not masturbate in the DC universe. <laughs> Period. <laughs> no wonder there's so much violence and angst then. Good lord. So that was the only change I could notice. Um, oh, I take that back. There was one other subtle difference. Um, the last two episodes, which line up with the last two issues of Dream Country, are flipped. Mm-hmm. Dream Country has Midsummer Night's Dream and then Facade, which is the issue that kills off Element Girl. Oh, yeah. In um, the audio drama, it's Facade, then Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh. And it sounds like it, they were able to make it work. Well, it doesn't matter because those are individual stories. True. Like, they don't, they're not contingent on one another. Dream Country is mostly just uh, um, individual stories without any real overarching narrative. Um, but I think the reason of that is just for a, for a 
big Grand Gunal finish. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Grand, Grand <laughs> because Midsummer Night's Dream is a really well-regarded issue. It's the issue that won the World, Fant- or World Fantasy Award. Is that what it's called? I think so. Whatever. It won a big award. <laughs> and it's the you know William Shakespeare issue where they put on the play for the fey folk. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a good issue. But um, So I understand the, the flipping there. Um, other than that, like the cast is great. I did have one complaint, actually two complaints, relatively minor. Riz Ahmed is fine, but he's not a voice actor. Oh, oh dear. There's a there's a scene where the Corinthian is like eating the eyeballs while he's talking, mm-hmm. and it like it sounds like a kid's going. Nom, 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 nom. Oh dear. And it's, it's yeah. that's hard to do. I mean, that's you know, yeah. it's, it's, so he, he just goes a little too over the top with it. Um, and then Kat Dennings is I. I go up and down with her as death. Mm-hmm. When she's introduced, I mean, she's got a really youthful voice. She does. Like, really, like, teenage youthful. So it's one of those, where a character that, that, that's that worldly and that empathetic, I guess. Mm-hmm. I would expect a little more maturity in her voice, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And it, but it, it works. By the end of that first introductory issue of her, I was, I was on board. I'm like, okay, I get it now. Mm-hmm. Then there's the flashback, the Hob Gadling story, you know? Yes, okay. Where Dream and Death run into Hob Gadling in like 1593 or something. Yeah. And, you know, you've got James McAvoy's deep British Morpheus voice. And then Kat Dennings is like, hey, what's going on in here? And I was like, it's supposed <laughs> to be like a pub in the 15th century. Like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and they even give her some like, you know, British style dialogue, like old timey slang and jargon but it's just with her dumb american voice (laughs) (laughs) so it's just like wow that doesn't work i did not like that at all but then when she comes back in the element girl story she like sounds more mature in that one i don't know why she's got a lower cadence and she is speaking to to urania blackwell very concerned and quietly and they've got a they have really great back and forth in that one so I was like, fuck, like, it, I can't get a read on this character. <laughs> like, where was that for the rest of it? <laughs> yeah. And so, I, yeah, I don't know, like, Kat Dennings is really hit or miss for me in this. Yeah, that, that can be tough, especially in voice acting. Uh, there's some actors, you watch them on the screen like Kat Dennings, and you're like, oh, you're funny, you know, I like you in this role. Yeah. And then when it comes to voice acting, uh, yeah, she does, she's like 32 with the voice of a 12-year-old. Yeah. Voice acting is a completely different beast from regular physical acting. It's as different as film acting is from theater acting. You know, like it's just a completely different skill set. And I see this a lot, like especially with those animated DC movies. Oh, yeah. They just get A list actors and plonk them in there. And a lot of it sounds wooden and weird because they're not used to acting in a booth with headphones and a big mic, you know? And so I I was really concerned when this first came out to see the huge cast list. But for a majority of it, I think it works amazing. I also did have one other minor complaint, which is the role of Desire. They hired Justin Vivian Bond, who is a singer, songwriter, author, painter, performance artist, and actor. (laughs) But Justin Vivian Bond, who I want to make sure that the pronoun is correct, because Bond is transgender, but I don't know how to pronounce that. Mix? Use the pronoun mix. I don't know what that is. And me neither. And and then personally, Bond prefers the pronoun V. 
V-self? V-self. Because of the middle initial Vivian. Okay. It's like individual, but I mean, that's just the one person doing, like, that's not, that's not an actual pronoun. Not so much. And I, I understand using pronouns that people prefer, but how am I ever going to know that somebody's individual pronoun is V? You're not. They're going to have to tell you. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, that's not, that's not how you converse in society. I <laughs> well, if, if, if they, if, excuse me, they, or... Mix. mix. I don't know. See, <laughs> yeah. I can mean they. Don't... I'm really fucking trying to be inclusive here, man. We are. <laughs> but this is, you're making this so difficult. <laughs> mix as desire, though. Yes. My problem is that Bond has a very aged voice. Oh, really? Um, very deep and points, not necessarily shrill, but it just like sounds like almost grating. And like, I'm not attracted to this voice. Kind of like an elderly Lauren Bacall. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Or like Kathleen Turner now. Oh, <laughs> yes. And it's one of those like, I, I feel like I need to be attracted to desire. Desire's voice should be like ASMR, I think. Yeah. Then. You should just be like, exactly. oh, kind of tingly there. And this may just be me. Um, you know, I mean, you know, everyone's opinion is going to vary on this. But I just, like, I didn't, I didn't click with that voice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it sounded more like um, despair to me. Oh, dear. But, I mean, that's not, that, that's just the, the cadence or the, the, the fucking sound or whatever. Um, Justin Vivian Bond does a great job with the role and just emotes the hell out of it. Um, and makes Desire sound like a like a threat to dream. Because Desire only has a couple scenes in this story. It's just, it didn't work 100% for me. Didn't quite sell it. Yeah. And that's, again, nothing against uh, Bond's commitment or uh, ability as an actor. It's just, I don't know, there's something about the sound that just didn't quite work. But I mean, who knows? I think that's still a, I think that on paper was a, was a good idea for a cast you know, like a transgender cabaret actor. Like, fuck yeah, that's desire. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It makes sense on paper, indeed. And for the most part, it sounds like it is, you said before, well worth owning the physical copy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to have it on my um, shelf over there. But again, I must stress, these are fucking quibbles. <laughs> these, these basically mean, my, my complaints here mean almost nothing in this amazing goddamn piece of work <laughs> like this this is a shockingly well done adaptation of something that like this should not have worked as well as it did um everyone involved was clearly insanely committed and again my hats off to dirk mags neil gaiman and the entire cast this is a gigantic cast too you get michael sheen who has you know five minutes of time in this <laughs> and somebody that big. And Oh, another thing I, last time we spoke, I had not heard Matthew. McFadden? No, Matthew the Raven. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, Andy Serkis. I hadn't heard Andy Serkis as Matthew yet. And he is exactly what I hear Matthew when I read the comic. I get a shocking. I'm, when I first heard him, cause you know, um, uh, Serkis is British Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I wonder if he's going to do British accent or what. But no, it is it's kind of New York, kind of just, it, it's like working class, you know, like, yeah, gotta, gotta check in with the boss, you know. <laughs> and it's literally exactly what I pictured when I read this comic book 20 years ago, whenever it was, when I first read it. It's this absolutely exact. 
And I cannot believe that that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a wonderful thing when that falls in place. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, actor or the voice actor, whoever portraying the character that you're familiar with already, it's just like, oh, there you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so my hat's completely off to Andy Serkis for nailing the hell out of that. You know, who knows who's going to play Matthew in the live action adaptation, but I'm definitely going to be comparing them to Andy Circus <laughs> if it's not him. They have big shoes to fill. Yeah. And, and also, going back to just how great this cast is, James McAvoy absolutely nails every single one of his lines, too. Like, he carries this thing because he's in almost every episode. I think the Urania Blackwell one is the only one that he's not in. His dream is fucking perfect. It's, it's dark and brooding when it needs to be. It's light and... Uh, happy when it needs to be, rarely. <laughs> but but it's it's just an exactly perfect voice for that character. It's not what I heard when I first read it, but it will be now. <laughs> <laughs> it does the trick. Yeah. All right. So that was my hot off the presses news <laughs> for today. <laughs> That's a good endorsement. There's a lot of good entertainment out there now, yeah, people, exactly. to help you pass the time. We don't have don't have any filler today. Don't have any don't have any uh, stupid goddamn Snyder cut news. <laughs> so that means. <laughs> so yeah, now we're just going straight into the story of today. We're uh, going into Sandman Mystery Theater, the first volume called The Tarantula, <laughs> by Matt Wagner, Guy Davis, and cover art by Gavin Wilson. <laughs> I think. So this took me fucking forever to find out who did the cover art for this. Um, Gavin Wilson. I, for a long time, I thought it was um, Dave McKeon. Oh. Okay, that does the same. Yeah, yeah, same, yeah. Because they're um, like montage photographs, you know, uh, and that's McKeon style. This, these aren't quite as outlandish as his, but I, I just, in my mind, I just conflated the two. And the more the Sandman Mystery Theater series goes, the more kind of outlandish those covers get. But I, I think it's Gavin Wilson for, if not the whole series, most of it. So, good job, Gavin Wilson. I'm sorry I couldn't find your name easier. <laughs> the covers are really exceptional. And I can see the similarities between him and McKean. But yeah, so the reason we're reading Sandman Mystery Theater is because we're going into November. Halloween is behind us in the rearview mirror. Did you have a good Halloween? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of candy. I know I, that much uh, for sure. <laughs> Mine got pretty rough. I'm not gonna lie. Oh. Yeah. Do you feel like you want to talk about that right now, or is it more of a private thing? Well, <sighs> <laughs> it's certainly not private for those shallow graves. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you have some things you'd like to talk about off the record. <laughs> well, a little peek behind the curtain. Uh, we record this early, so. <laughs> We don't know how our Halloween is yeah. going to be yet, but apparently Colby's is going to be really exciting. Yeah, someone's like dying. I... <laughs> I'll be at home sitting on the couch watching horror movies and eating Reese's peanut butter cups. So this may be the last you hear of me. Maybe I'm the one who's in the shallow grave. I hope not. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean it's, this podcast is going to sound very strange with me just talking to myself for an hour about comic books. <laughs> Okay, so Halloween's done. We're into fucking November now. We're into noir November. Yes. The reason we're talking about Sandman Mystery Theater noir November. Are you are you familiar with noir November? The concept. The concept, yes. But I want to know why you 
hate that word. So well, much. no, I don't really hate the word. So, so Noir Vember, for those who don't know, it's it's like the fucking thirty one days of Halloween, whatever that, where you just watch a noir movie a day for November, and just enough with the fucking themed movie months, okay? Christ, like I don't want to have my entire year dictated what I have to watch when. No. No. And it just drives me nuts. I appreciate that there's a lot of noir movies. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that the word noir starts with an N, which is similar to the beginning of the word November. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realize that noir uh, and November share two letters. I don't care. <laughs> I exactly. Don't, like, that's so reaching. Is it, is it like that and because it's kind of misty out, maybe? I don't, I don't know. It's <laughs> dumb and I hate it. <laughs> so stop, everybody. It's not the word, it's the idea and the con- Like, fuck, just watch what you want to watch, man. Right. If you want to watch 30 days of noir movies, great. But, like, who cares? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You, you can watch 30 days of noir whenever you want. Yeah, yeah I, I could do that in July if I wanted. Right. You know that? But then what would I watch in November? (laughs) Oh dear, conundrum. (laughs) And the only reason I give Halloween a pass is because obviously Halloween and horror go together hand in hand. They do. And there's been a shitload of not just horror movies, but Halloween movies. Right, right. Mm -hmm. You could watch 30 days, you could watch 60 days, you could watch 100 days, you could watch 365 days of Halloween movies if you wanted. I wouldn't recommend it because I think it's fucking dumb. But <laughs> Make it burn out really fast. 30 days is pushing it for me, or 31, whatever. But I don't know, I, just, I get tired of these themed things. It's like I've got this really good friend who really likes themed parties. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. But there was one year where we had like six themed parties in a row, and everyone had to have a costume and fit the thing. You know, it was one of those that like, like it, it wasn't just this friend. It was like then everyone in the friend group wanted to do a theme party. Oh, yeah. Because my, my friend, uh, he... he stuck to a fairly normal rotation of theme parties, like one a year. But because of the popularity of his theme parties, then everyone wanted to do a theme party. So then it became, I need, like, you know, nine stupid fucking expensive costumes that I have to cobble together on my own <laughs> per year just to fit the dumb theme. <laughs> it's expensive fast. Yeah, and it's just, it's like, I just don't want to have to deal with that, man. I'm tired. Right. I'm not 12. <laughs> well, I only I look like I'm 12. <laughs> just it can be so limiting it really can it's like those social media challenges where those get really banal where they're like oh yeah same thing same thing yeah yeah day number five chair like who the fuck cares yeah exactly (laughs) i remember i did one of those like 10 days 10 movie things a while ago Mm -hmm. it's like one image no explanation like fuck you i don't want to just show an image that's that's meaningless Oh, I hate those. Like, oh, here's a picture of, uh, you know, Joaquin Phoenix. Moving on. You know? Right. <laughs> uh, that's the second Joaquin Phoenix reference in two weeks. I don't like that. <laughs> um, anyway, and this, so when I did that, I was like, fuck that. I'm going to explain why I like this movie and why you should watch it. I'm not just going to show you a fucking image and then move on. Yes, please. Like, it's the same with the art challenges, too. People who are purporting to, like, you know, post a picture of the, you and the arts. No explanation. It's like, no, please, explain. The arts are really important. You should explain the impact it has on your life. Yeah, exactly. Tell me succinctly why you like this thing and why I should watch it. Don't write a goddamn article about it. Just, you know, two or three paragraphs. No, not even that. Two or three sentences. (laughs) It is good. You should see it. (laughs) Because, like, when I did mine, I just did the images, and then, hey, American Astronaut, none of you have heard of this movie. 
Um, it's a weird sci-fi western musical made for zero dollars. Uh, it has some of the best music ever. Go watch it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like that. It's directed by Corey McAbee, who's a goddamn genius. <laughs> I hate musicals. I fucking hate musicals. And I love this movie. <laughs> There's an exception everywhere, right? <laughs> In terms of noir Vember, yeah, it's a catchy title, but, you know, there's lots of good noir out there. Watch it whenever you watch yeah, there's tons of, it. Yeah, there's tons of great noir. Yeah, so for our noir Vember, um, we're going to be reading an issue of Sandman Mystery Theater a day for 30 days, writing detailed reports on them, and then posting a single image from them <laughs> without any context. <laughs> no explanation. <laughs> anyway, so the first volume of Sandman Mystery Theater. Ah. Got off way off track with this whole noir vember bullshit, <laughs> but we're back on it. Um, this is one of Vertigo's first ongoing series. Really, is it? Well, it's like one of their first original ongoing series. Okay. Because like Sandman was pre-Vertigo, Hellblazer was pre-Vertigo. That's right. I don't know if it was their first, but it, I mean, it came out in their launch year, so um, it's one of the first. But what's interesting to me about this. This is technically a spinoff of Sandman, mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman's Sandman, because Dream is referenced in it. Um, obviously, uh, it's while he's incarcerated in yeah. the series. Um, so it takes place during that. Wesley Dodds is being influenced by Dream in a way, and, and he sees like Dream's helm in it and all that. So it's, 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 it directly references Sandman, and it's essentially a spinoff of it. But... The main character in this predates Dream and Neil Gaiman Sandman by many decades. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that it's technically a spinoff, but it's based on characters, ideas, and concepts that technically <laughs> Neil Gaiman's Sandman is a spinoff of. That's true. Which That's is this point. giant Ouroboros <laughs> of uh, Vertigo characters. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an interesting, that on that note, it's. Okay, you guys, you have to take a shot every time I say, oh dear, or on that note. But on that note. Oh dear. <laughs> it's really interesting how uh, they took this character, like you said, from something that, honestly, m most people don't know about, and most <coughs> comic book fans don't remember, and they turn it into something vital and interesting mm -hmm. and of its own world. Yeah. I, I fucking love this series. Even though it's very samey. I've mentioned this before, that it's, it's almost like a grid. Like, every four issues, there's a story. Four issues is done, move on to the next, move on to the next, move on to the next, until it ends. But it's 70 issues with one annual, and except for the last couple issues, which is a two-part story, it's just like, four issues, name of the issues is who the killer is. There's the tarantula, there's the face, there's uh, the brute. There's the goblin, there's the crone, you know? And so it's, it, because of that, like, after a few issues, it, you know, you kind of get, all right, oh, I wonder who the bad guy's going to be, which I'm pretty sure I've said that before. But that is also the core of noir. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, noir stories follow very set paths with archetypical characters. There's not, not a whole lot of outward surprises in noir. Once you, once you see the, the strings on the puppets, you kind of know how the play is going to end. Exactly. But if the world building and the characters are interesting enough, you know, you can overlook that. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things I love about this series, and you get a hint of it in this first volume, is just the slow 
evolution of the characters. Mm-hmm. This, these aren't characters that change on a dime. Like they, they grow and age like real people. You see in this issue, uh, or in this volume, Wesley Dodds meeting Diane Belmont. And those two characters become inextricably linked in comic book lore. So you know eventually they're going to be together. But in this, like, they talk a couple times. Right. <laughs> in the next issue, they talk some more. And then they go on a date. And then they go on a few more dates. And then she spends the night. And then they're kind of in a relationship for a while. Then, you know, issue 40, <laughs> they, uh, yeah. they uh, uh, talk about, uh, are we boyfriend or girlfriend or what? <laughs> <laughs> what are we? <laughs> then she thinks he's Sandman. Then he, he tells her he's Sandman. Then they work together. And then they have a... Uh, she gets pregnant, and then she has an abortion, and, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is—I mean, this is a really deep comic book for like the social mores of the 1930s. Then, like that decision weighs on her for issues about if she's going to tell her father or not. And um, father doesn't like the fact that she's spending the night at w- Wesley Dodd's house. And <laughs> he'll say things like, "I realize you're probably just staying in the guest room." But still, it doesn't look right. <laughs> it's not appropriate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the way the way this series kind of uh, intertwines those interpersonal stories with then the murder of the week is really fucking well done. And so even though it is samey, watching these characters grow and evolve throughout the series is, is really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. And I know this might seem like a stretch, but... Listeners, if you obviously can tell, Colby knows way more about this character in the series than I do. I've only read the first volume, The Tarantula. But it kind of reminds me of superhero comic book Perry Mason. Yeah. I'm not talking about the new one. I haven't seen the new series yet. But uh, my grandma used to record the old 1950s show for us. (laughs) That's the one, yes. And it's like, it's the same concept. I mean, when you go to watch Perry Mason you know what you're going to see. But it's so well done that you're like, I want more of this. Yeah. I want to tune back in and, and see what the next episode yeah. is going to be. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's fiction. You know, that's the police procedural. Yeah. Every week you know what you're going to get. You watch a fucking horror movie, you know it's going to be a horror movie. You know? exactly. <laughs> so, like, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's comforting, though, that way sometimes. Mm-hmm. And when it's done right, it doesn't feel repetitive or stale. Yeah. It just makes you want to, you know, what, what does this writer and creator have for me next? Yeah. And on that note, again, take a shot. But um, what's the one that comes after the tarantula? In the, the story? Yeah. The face. The face. The face. Okay. Yeah. I would like to read that very much. It's not very good, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> the face is probably my least favorite storyline in the book, which is funny because it sets up one of the only reoccurring villains in the story. Oh, really? Yeah. The face. The titular face. Um, He's this assassin whose face is all fucked up, so he wears weird masks and stuff. But he actually comes back in the Starman-Sandman crossover. Oh. Which, that's another thing that's really interesting to me, because this book was going at the same time as Starman, which I've said before is one of the greatest comic books ever written. And it did a crossover story with Starman, but they did it in a really, really fucking interesting way, because you can read the Sandman Mystery Theater storyline, which is called The Mist, four issues, Wesley Dodds is tracking down a killer, runs into Ted Knight, who becomes Starman, but he's not Starman yet, they kind of team up, but they kind of hate each other, solve the mystery, and move on. Other than the fact that Ted Knight's in that, it's not, doesn't have anything to do with the Starman comic. And you go read the Starman comic, it's 
Jack Knight, Ted's son, in the 1990s, has a case that somehow might relate to one, an old one that Wesley Dodds had. So he tracks down Wesley Dodds, meets him, chats with him. They uh, hang out, and they team up, and have their own little adventure. And with a couple of references, like, oh, yeah, I met your dad one time. He helped me track down the mist. Oh. <laughs> Moving on. And, but these four issues came out at the same... So there's four issues of Sandman Mystery Theater, four issues of Starman. Each one came out at the same month. Oh, okay. So it was eight issues total telling this complete story, like two halves of a whole. But if you read them individually, they're just two whole stories. That's clever. But it was fucking amazing. And in, at the time when they came out, they actually would have like ads for it. Of like, Starman, crossover with Sandman. Sandman, crossover with Starman. But, but they weren't actually linked. I thought, like, so much of comic book today is you got to read the four issues of, of Batman that ties into the eight issues of oh, Dark Knight's wow. Metal and then find out how that is carried over in Justice League. And then that's going to tie into next year's tie-in series. But you can't read that one unless you read the Prelude comics. <laughs> and it's just all of this bullshit. And so to see these two perfect stories that complement each other that don't need to. Like, it, I don't know. It worked amazingly, and I wish there were better writers today that could still do that. <laughs> well, it's a very keen approach, and it does take some foresight and some actual thought into it and there is a difference between research and having to slog through a storyline to understand it so yeah that sounds like it's a a good read yeah yeah and it's it's a hell of a lot of fun and most of these sandman storylines you can read independently and obviously you're not going to get that overarching love story with uh wesley and diane like, you're not, you're not going to understand it because you're only seeing a piece of it. <laughs> but their situation within the story will still make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you're seeing a snapshot of it, but it's still, like, it's not like, what the fuck, are, who are these two people? Why are they arguing? Why are they in love? You know, like, you, you still get a complete story within there. And that's, that's really fucking hard to do. I feel like if you were to read this monthly, it would work great. You know, like, the, the entire, whatever, the entire layout of the series wouldn't be as noticeable. But me, like a fucking idiot, I like shotgun the entire series over the course of a couple months. And again, I, I still really enjoyed it. I just wouldn't recommend reading it that way. <laughs> just parse it out a little yeah. bit. <laughs> um, in terms of the art, uh, when, we, when you first introduced me to this book and we were talking about how the characters are drawn, uh, you were right. Like The way the characters look in this is not your traditional comic book. Yeah. You know, um modified, beautiful people. And Greek gods. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, if um, Wesley Dodds is just a dumpy dude. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a doughy guy with a double chin who wears big round glasses, and he's a superhero. He is, yeah. <laughs> and I, he, I think Wesley Dodds is the kind of guy that, like, he could hold his own in a bar fight. Like, he, yeah. There might be that one guy who's like, well, I'm going to pick on him because yeah. he looks small and round and whatnot, and then Wesley Dodds would probably kick their ass. Yeah, well, he, he also, like, kind of Bruce Wayne-ish, he, like, traveled the world, and, you know, he, he's, uh, I think he says he's a Buddhist, which is like <laughs> 1930s New York, <laughs> white guy Buddhist. <laughs> um, and he, so he travels, he traveled the world, I think he knows, like, jujitsu or something like that, so, like, he, he, he knows how to handle himself in a fight, but also, he's not, like, superhuman in his fighting. No. Like, he gets knocked down a 
lot in this series. There's one whole storyline where he gets clocked in the head and he's just like wandering the streets like a slobbering idiot while he's tr- trying to like figure out where he is, who he is, and what's going on because he got hit so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and that, like you mentioned before, when it comes to characters, that makes you care more about them because there yeah, is that vulnerability. Um, he's not like Superman, and the bullets are just going to bounce off his chest. He can get hurt. Yeah. This may seem like a small thing to some, but again, I really appreciated the way the characters are portrayed, especially Diane, because mm-hmm. she looks like just a regular woman. Yeah. Whereas I can't remember the name of the main female character in American Vampire. It doesn't matter because, sorry fans, American Vampire is not as good as you think <laughs> it is. But like the whole arc of American Vampire is supposed to take place from the silent screen era up until, I think, like, Korea or Vietnam. And um, the way all the females are drawn, it's like you get, they they give them a 1920s bob and then, like, you know, breasts for days. And I just appreciated the fact that Diane and everyone in here, it's just like, oh, yeah, those look like regular people. Yeah. Yeah, especially, uh, like, Diane looks like, like, that could be my grandma back in the day. (laughs) the the way they draw her hair and her lips and like her round face the fashion um, Guy Davis is absolutely amazing at at this series aside from just the characters looking like people there's just uh, an inherent ugliness to the world in this Mm. series that is almost a caricature of real life but also at times feels more real than real. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just like an ugliness to the world that feels real. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I think, how we would see the 1920s, um, you know, how like when you find an old, old vintage photograph and you pick yeah. it up and you just think, oh, this is, and I know it sounds silly, but you look at it and you're like, huh, I wonder how they saw color back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it feels to me almost like the difference between watching a movie from the 1930s and then living in the 1930s. I think some people have an idealized vision of what the past looked like. It's very informed by pop culture. And then there's like the dirty reality of it. Exactly. Yeah. The difference between like, oh, well, this takes place in the, again, like the late 1900s. Let's, let's put her in a a Bob haircut, but like give her the body of Wonder Woman as opposed to, like you said, this looks like this could be my grandma back when she was young. Just like a flapper with some big old titties. Damn titties, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta give the boys something to look at. Uh, I was just gonna say something else about that. Not about the big old titties. <laughs> at the time that it was written, I believe, I don't know who said this, if it was the writer or if this was just the way it was pitched, but it was like, 1930s storytelling with a 1990s sensibility. Well said. Okay. Because you feel that this is very, it's almost like a revisionist Western. You know how like Westerns in the 1950s and 60s were all like, like, woohoo, it's time to West and kill those engines. And then, I don't know, sometimes like Sam Peckinpah or I don't know which director, um, there was, it was kind of a shift then from like, like, you know, like, the Native Americans weren't bad guys, you know? <laughs> so let's, let's, let's ease up on the uh, uh, showing how fucking amazing these cowboys were. And instead of that sanitized, Eurocentric view of, of the Western, it became more gray. And, the, you know, like, there's good and bad guys, and everything's dirty, and the fucking 
things are bad. <laughs> yeah. The world sucks. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this was not a fun time to be alive. No, no. <laughs> I don't care what uh, Roy Rogers said while he's sucking his guitar on his fucking horse. Like, it's, this was rough. <laughs> right, right. It was not clean white western shirts yeah. and merino hair is perfectly coiffed red hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this kind of feels like that to me, like that 1930s sheen of like, well, gee golly, look at how great everything is. <laughs> and here, like, no, it's it's dark and, and gross and there's murders and racism and good people are terrible and terrible people are still terrible. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, people are complex. Like, the yeah. person who seems like a jerk can actually yeah. do a noble thing. My favorite example of that is the character of Burke, mm. the cop. In this, he's just a uh, you know, grizzled detective who's trying to solve this case and blah, blah, blah. And there's a scene where Wesley's talking. Was it Wesley? I don't know. Somebody's talking to him and, like, trying to get a little bit of humanity out of him. And then he just casually drops the most racist fucking thing imaginable. Like, fucking, like, wow. And then it just keeps going. Like, because that's, that's the way life was. Like, this is a guy who is, on the surface, noble. And, and he holds deep-seated, racist, horrifying beliefs. And that comes up continually throughout the series. There's not ever a comeuppance for him, or he's never held accountable. <laughs> he's just a, a racist guy doing his job in the 1930s. And, uh, and I thought that was just really fucking interesting, the, the way they, they layer that. Because it's clear that he's in the wrong. Like, you, know, he, he, you, can't, you can't see that and be like, no, I like this guy. Because every time you see him and every time he does something good, that's still in the back of your head. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. He is a, a character that if you were to put him out nowadays, he would probably be what you would call canceled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you were in a comic book or a movie or a TV show or whatever now, there would be constant scrutiny on him and it would the show would go out of its way to explain to you that this is a bad guy because of what he believes mm-hmm. whereas in reality like that's everywhere even today in the year 2020 that's fucking everywhere and people are more complex than the black and white morality of twitter <laughs> <laughs> thank god <laughs> but at the same time like but same, you never know who believes what and the the cop that's helping you uh change your tire could be you know killing a black kid tomorrow yeah and, and that's, you know, that's in this. And again, the fact that in issue 70, you know, when I was reading this, that was still rolling around in the back of my head with Burke. Like, and one of these days, somebody's going to clock him in the jaw and be like, no, you don't act that way. Or like, you understand the latent humanity in all people. No, it never happens. <laughs> <laughs> he lives and dies that yeah. way. Huh? And, I, and I, I love that. I love how complex that is. It's, there's no easy answers. There's no letting you off the hook as a reader for this. Like, you have to confront the reality of the world while reading that. Well said. And on that... Uh... <laughs> on, on the note? On what, on what note? <laughs> I don't see a note. <laughs> on no note. In that vein. <laughs> in that... Uh, the same thing with Diane, too. You and I have discussed this before, where it seems like for a... a nerd and a feminist it's like when you see movies and scripts made directed by women or books for that matter any medium like you want to be supportive of it. you do because you're like this yeah. is this is great on the certain like on the surface this is great but so much of it now is like that rah rah yeah. spoomba and it seems like in so much media now there has to be that reminder that it's like you know i'm a girl i'm a girl and i can do things yeah. 
And Diane comes up against, like you were alluding to with Burke, the same, just, just the same attitudes. Sexism. Yeah, the just, same, yeah. Just that, just that casual societal sexism. Right, right. And there's, again, I haven't read the whole series, but just in this comic, there's never a moment where she stops and says, you won't speak to me like that. You know, or you've underestimated me once okay. again. But it, she's just such a great character because, like, her dad and the police officers are trying to, like, protect her yeah. and shield her. And, like, oh, you should do this. You should go there. And she's just, like, you can just see her watching everything and being like, okay, I'm going to do what I want. Exactly. <laughs> and it's not performative. No. She does what she wants because she wants to. And it's not to show these, these guys that I'm just as good as them. <laughs> it's like she, she knows that. She doesn't have to prove it. Exactly. And you see that a lot in, in the series. Um, she is constantly going off on her own, doing her own thing, solving her own mysteries. She becomes a, a writer um, in the series. Um, she starts off as like a comic book writer or a pulp novel writer and then writes stories about the Sandman's activities. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it, it's really well done because she's allowed to be complex on her own. Mm-hmm. It's not tied. Her identity isn't tied to proving somebody right. Or, I'm sorry. Her identity isn't tied to proving somebody wrong. It's, uh, it's that she's a person and she wants to do these things because she's a person. Exactly. And, you, you know, the writers, again, don't get too caught up in the idea that, oh, this is something that needs to be explained. It's like, no, it really doesn't. It's just yeah. comprehensive, good storytelling. It reminds me of your recent critiques of Birds of Prey. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Birds of Prey, colon, the emancipation of one Harleen Quinn. Was that the name? I don't know. Whatever the... Worst fucking title in the world. <laughs> right. I say that about a lot of things, but that might actually be the worst title ever. It might. And I said that when I saw the script. I was like, don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Stop, stop. <laughs> Time out. Oh, indeed. Yes, yes. Yeah, if you want to see an example of a well-written female character with her own agency, go to Sandman Street <laughs> Theater. No offense to the girls and birds of prey, but again, it's like, no, I don't, I don't need my wine group to show up for me in my action movie. I just don't. Well, again, it's very performative. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, that, that's not feminism. No. And so many people are like, clapping, you know, Yoth Queen. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so many people are, are like all about Birds of Prey. And like, you know, I get it. It has a female creative team, so I understand wanting to support that. But I also want some quality there. <laughs> you know? There has to be. There has to be. And just when it feels so obviously performative, like, don't, just tell your story. Like, don't, you don't have to, you don't have to do that. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't. This is going to be a little bit of a tangent here. Yeah. One of the best movies, I think, in the last decade that tells the story of a complex female character, actually based on a true story, is Wild with Reese Witherspoon. Hmm. Never seen that. Based on the book by Cheryl Strayed when she was going through a dark time in her life and in the, I think it was the early mid-90s, she decided to walk the Pacific Crest Trail, mm-hmm. um, which at the time, not a lot of women were doing. And it's just a great movie because you get to see her be a human. Mm-hmm. There is no, like, you know, poppy girl power song that comes in to sweep her out on her exit. She's just a person who's gone through some horrible shit and is trying to decide, you know, what that means for her in her life. And you just watch a movie like that, or you read something like Sandman Mystery Theater, and you're just, oh, thank you, thank you. Because it's not condescending. It's not patronizing. It's like, you know, women are just allowed to be regular people. Yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not. Whoa! <laughs> Fucking human beings. Damn. But, and, but again, and that's, but that's like, 
they're going back to that casual societal sexism. It's expected. <laughs> it's, it's expected in, in media and in storytelling that the female characters are, are there to push the plot or to push the lead character into doing something or to stand up to, to the oppression. To me, like, there's, there's a level of casual sexism in a story about a character rising above casual sexism because it's almost like, well, this is the special one. Right. And this is the special woman that is allowed to transcend that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's like it's like it's like uh, like Mulan, you know, like the the fucking like that that uh, the one quote story, you know, like 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 she's the one who's better than than everyone else. You know? <laughs> right. And which is just so stunning to me because they didn't do that in the cartoon. The cartoon tells it better than the yeah. actual live action remake. And that's, unfortunately, like, that's what we see with a lot of female-centric stories now is, and in, in comic book adaptations, too, like the Birds of Prey. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch The Kitchen yet. Yes, I did. Ha! <sighs> I, I don't know. Was, I've seen worse. I didn't care one way or the other. It was one of those, like, completely middle-of-the-road movies for me. It wasn't bad, but, again, the females throughout that whole entire movie, there's no real struggle or complexity for any of them. Yeah. It's just like, oh, we're badass women and we're going to take over the gangland scene in the kitchen. We're going to take what we want to show the guys. God, that was a terrible accent. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where I started or where I ended with that one. But... <laughs> I don't think the movie does either, so you're okay. I'm trying um, to think of a, of a line that, that Melissa McCarthy has in that movie that I could mimic, but I don't remember a single goddamn thing about that movie. Right? Unremarkable. <laughs> remember, uh, Domino Gleason's in it. And when he shows up, I was like, hey, Donald Gleason's in this. I'm like, oh, he's just going to stand in the background? Okay. <laughs> we hardly knew you. And then by the end, like, oh, yeah, he was in that, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, Kitchen, um, not an example of how to do uh, protagonists or noir. Based on a Vertigo comic, though. It, it is. It I'd is. like to read the comic. I can't imagine it's worse. You know, it's got to be better, right? <laughs> I hope so. I would think so. I haven't read it either. Because, but... again, I didn't hate the movie, but it was just... I don't know, it was a movie that you immediately forget. Exactly, exactly. You know, I would love to see one day where, you know, if something like this were to get adapted to the screen, Sandman Mystery Theater, I think it could be done in a way that is, like, as good as it is in the actual book. And, yeah, uh, yeah have they, has there ever been talk about adapting this? I don't believe so. Um, so Wesley Dodds, I mentioned that Wesley Dodds, I, you know what, let's let's back up for a minute. What's your book report? <laughs> What's your book report for Sammy Mystery Theater of the Tarantula? <laughs> well, okay. Serial killer is on the loose. Higher-ups may be involved in uh, uh, upper-crust society, New York. And Wesley Dodds, at first glance, an unassuming, like you said, just everyday kind of guy, has a secret. He is the Sandman. And he is out and about trying to solve these murders, this kidnapping... And along the way, he meets Diane, whose friend has been kidnapped and is, oh, right. is currently missing. So that's how she ties into the story. It just dawned on me. We kind of already talked about all this. We did. We kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Dodd's and Diane's investigations lead them to the upper echelons of society, where there are, of course, stark, horrible secrets Intrigue and murder! Uh -huh. 
So yeah, that's the, that's the book report, and it's really well done. Yeah. So just when you were flipping through it just now, the end, towards the end, when you see the tarantula and the fucking black cloak, like torturing that girl, uh, that scene sticks out in my mind like fucking crazy. When I first read this book in middle school, um, so I read this before I read uh, Sandman by Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. This was like my introduction. Think maybe not. Fuck it. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Um, but when I read this, there's that scene where he's torturing her, and you see the bruises on her face. And just going back to Guy Davis's art, there's no gore or anything here. It's just there's something so ugly and dirty about like the abuse going on in this page that just fucking repulsed me when I first read this. And I love how repulsive it is mm. just this dude in a black cloak holding a red hot poker like threatening this woman who's all bruised up and just rats at her feet and and it's like i can i can imagine the sound of his voice you know mm-hmm. oh my my no that's not what i had in mind at all <laughs> it really is unsettling yeah yeah unsettling that's a good word for it because that that just stuck in my mind like crazy and then i, I also i love the design of Wesley Dodds, like his, his costume as a Sandman. Yeah. So back in the 1930s when he was first introduced in, in reality, he wore a purple cape and a fedora and a green suit and this kind of almost sci-fi looking gas mask. But in the comic, it's, he's literally just a tan trench coat uh, gas mask. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. <laughs> Probably the most unique thing that sets him apart is his gas canister gun. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he does look like, again, a guy who's just like, well, I need to wear a gas mask and, you know, hide my identity. Yeah. So, Yeah, exactly. And it's a perfect update to that character. Because that's kind of what they were going for back in the 1930s. Um, I think Gardner Fox created the character, maybe. That's clearly what they were going for, but it's the 1930s in a new medium, so they uh, they kind of embellish the character to make him look more super heroic. To bring that down to the more realistic look is, is really cool. So he was created by Gardner Fox and Bert Christman. Bert Christman. Or is that Christman? Christman! <laughs> Christman! <laughs> anyway, I, 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 just, I love the redesign. I think it works fucking beautifully. And I, you know, I mentioned that he was an original character in the 1930s, and he was on the JSA and like the All-Star Squadron. and uh, He was a staple of like, team books in the 1930s. And... Some of those JSA characters come up in the comic later and or are referenced. Um, like there's a scene where he goes to Grant's gym. And they talk about the owner named Ted. Ted Grant was a superhero named Wildcat who was on the Justice Society with Wesley. Um, I mentioned Starman, the whole crossover. Uh, there's a character named Crimson Avenger that shows up in a couple issues who was technically in DC's, in DC's post-crisis continuity which is the only continuity that matters. <laughs> he was the first superhero. Mm-hmm. And so he shows up in that. Dr. Midnight is mentioned a couple times. Charles McKnighter was this blind surgeon who could see in the dark. He became oh, wow. a superhero. Predated Daredevil by like 30 years. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and he shows up in this. He's actually the one that gives uh, Diane the referral for her abortion. <laughs> Which is, I can only imagine like old timey or not old timey, but just shitty comic book fans in the 1990s who, if they were to read, they're like, "What?" 
Just imagining no the Twitter trolls of today getting on this book. I'm so glad it was written when it was and not today. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I, I, I love seeing that classic continuity creep into this. And how many, how many editions are there? 70, you say? Issues? Issues, yes. Yeah, there's 70 issues in one annual. Okay, all right. And the guy, so Guy Davis didn't do the art for every story, um, but he fucking should have. <laughs> <laughs> they should have stayed with him. Yeah, the second, the guy that does the face, like I said, I don't like the art in that issue or in that storyline because it kind of, it gets really weird. And Wesley Dobbs looks completely different. And I don't know. They, then they went through with a couple other artists and then Guy Davis came back. So he does most of the series, but not all of it. And there's a couple fill-in issues here and there that he doesn't do. I think Warren Police does a couple of fill-ins in like issue like 40 or 50 or something. But I would say, like, if you're looking for a best of of Sandman Mystery Theater, I would obviously start with the Tarantula. Maybe there's a couple others here and there that are good, but one of the one of the other big ones is called The Phantom of the Fair, which is about a serial killer at the World's Fair. Oh. And it's like it's like seven. It's like really weird, and like Wesley discovers a cabinet full of. Uh, jars of pickled penises that the killer cut off. <laughs> and uh, and it, like, delves into closeted homosexuality in New York in the 1930s. Like, one of Wesley's best friends is this closeted gay guy who gets embroiled in the subplot. My only complaint about that storyline is that it, it gets a little deep into the barrier gays trope. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, the couple heroic gay characters get killed off in it. It's just nothing, I, I fucking hate that. But uh, yeah. um, regardless, I don't know, it's the 90s. It's a 25-year-old comic, so I give it a little bit more of a pass. Mm -hmm. But it, it's still still not good to see. But it's also, like, that's the stakes. He's hunting a serial killer. People gotta die. <laughs> so I, I get it. Also, the Hour Man storyline is fun. It introduces that character, Rex Tyler, the Hour Man. He takes a pill and he gets strong for an hour. And that's the first story that introduced, like, costumed heroes in that. And in the 19, I think, 40s in the comics, they made Sandman take on a new costume. They got him out of the fedora and the gas mask, and they put him in this gaudy purple and yellow mask and everything, you know, and he had a sidekick named Sandy the Golden Boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> and... In this, they address Sandy as, that was just Diane. Like, oh. Diane's called Sandy when she's working with him. And the Golden Boy sidekick was just an invention for the comics. Ah. <laughs> he actually wears that 1940s costume in one issue of this, where he goes to a, a fancy dress party. And so he gets this costume that's, he says it's an acrobat costume. And he puts it on, and he's like looking at his big belly in it, and he's like, yeah, this looks terrible. <laughs> 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 I forgot about that part, yeah. <laughs> that's in, I can't remember what issue that is. That's like, oh, yeah, it's during Hour Man. So that's in like the 30s or 40s of the series. <laughs> but yeah, great series overall. And I don't know, I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> uh, well, obviously it sounds like it's a uh, vertigo for you. Yeah, it's a big vertigo. Like I said, it's not perfect, but it's it's great. And it, it brings up questions about society and you know the rose-colored way we look back at the the past right like a lot of what we think was was you know cute and quaint back then like it was actually terrible <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and hard and yeah hard. yeah there's a there's a whole storyline about children in orphanages mm -hmm. just how shitty though that life 
was, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of, like, peeling back the curtain of, of the reality of the time, but you know, I've said that, like, a million times now. So. <laughs> you fucking get it! <laughs> this book comes highly recommended by us. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's um, one, of the, one of the better Vertigo ongoing series. And Vertigo didn't have that many long ongoing series at launch. Um, this was one of the first, and like I said, uh, Hellblazer was already going, Sandman was already going, Swamp Thing was already going, Doom Patrol was already going. After this, I, I mean, I'm right now I, I don't have like a list in front of me, so I'm struggling to think, but I know like Preacher came a couple years later. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm sure there were others in the 90s, but... <laughs> Transmetropolitan? Transmet, yeah, Transmet was, yeah, mid to late 90s. It's probably around the same time as Preacher, maybe later. It started at Helix, though. And then Helix folded right. and Vertigo took it over. I mean, Helix was owned by DC. It was just their, like, mature reader sci-fi imprint. That's not needed. Don't need that. Yeah, right. What's wrong with you? Get rid of that. You already got Vertigo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come into the fold. <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to reading more of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good series, and I, I have the entire series on, in single issue. Because for a while, it was hard to find it collected. They Like, this, the tarantula was easy to find. And then they're like Phantom of... No, not even Phantom of the Fair. But now they have these nice, big, like, omnibus editions mm-hmm. of, like, the first, you know, ten issues and then the next ten or whatever. Um, so it's easier to find now, but it's spendy. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I know who I'm going to ask to borrow the next one. So <laughs> You can read the face if you want, but again, like I said, it's, it's not as good as the first volume. <laughs> and some weird artistic choices. Uh, it was pointed out, so the face, a lot of it takes place in Chinatown in New York. And in the first issue, <laughs> due to a coloring error, all the Asian characters are bright yellow. Oh. Like the Simpsons yellow. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh. Well, that deserves an oh dear. Oh yeah. dear. <laughs> and then in issue two, the, not issue two, the comic, whatever, the second issue of that story they correct it, and they have, like, a more, um, I don't know, like, just pale complexion, like, an actual human. <laughs> and there's, like, a letter, there's, like, a note at the end of that issue, like, hey, yeah, so, sorry about that. <laughs> like, there was a fuck-up with the the printer, like, they had, I can't, there's actually, I think it's online, maybe, there's a reference to that. It said that the editor apologized, but I, I read that in, when I reread the series recently and um, I read the apology. I was like, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> I was really stepped in at this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there was also, I wasn't, I forgot about this. There was also a sequel series to this. Just a five or six issue miniseries called Sandman Mystery Theater, The Sleep of Reason. And it was by John, I can't remember. The guy that wrote the uh, Books of Magic ongoing series. can't remember his name. Oh. I read it a few months ago, and it was not good. Like, I did not like it at all. Oh, really? No. It was set partially in 2006, I think, and uh-huh. partially in 1997. Followed an embedded photographer in Afghanistan, and he stumbles across Wesley Dodd's mask and gas gun that was, like, walled up in some building in Afghanistan. And then it cuts back to 1997 and shows Wesley and Diane on vacation in Afghanistan, like you do. <laughs> Travel to Afghanistan, you know, like one of the most hotbed, you know, violent 
regions in the world, and two 90-year-olds go there on fucking vacation. Yeah. And then Diane gets kidnapped, Wesley gets beaten up, and then he comes back as the Sandman and saves her and almost kills this guy, and then somehow this this modern-day journalist reads Wesley Dodd's journals. Oh, they keep referring to him reading them, but they don't ever show him doing it. It really fucking annoys me. Mm-hmm. And he's all burnt up, and he goes crazy and uses the gas gun. It's just a really, really weird, poorly told story with some baffling artistic decisions. <laughs> it doesn't feel at all like it's connected with Sandman Mystery Theater. Hmm. One of those questionable narrative choices. Yeah. And especially since in, in the DC universe, Wesley Dodd's story had already wrapped up. He... Hung out with Jack Knight. He watched the the um, his mantle kind of get passed on, and then he died. Like he has a death. The first issue of of uh, David Goyer and James Robinson's JSA is all about the new society um, going to Dodd's funeral. Oh. The evil wizard Mordru tries to kill him. And what the fuck was that? <laughs> I turned it off. I turned it off. I swear I did. You did. Thank you. We didn't do a phone check at the beginning of this episode. Apparently, we're gonna have to. It's gonna have to be a reoccurring segment. <laughs> I guess so. Anyway. Uh, anyway, so like, yeah, uh, Mordred tries to kill Dodds and he kills himself um, instead. But again, he's like a character that lived to a ripe old age, has a, a definitive death, and um, you know they moved on from there. And then for some reason, Sleep of Reason then shows a a new story right before his death. And like, who, who cares? Just let him let him be at peace. Fuck. But Jonah hexed him, huh? <laughs> no, because they didn't undo that death, okay, at fair. least. If they Jonah hexed him, I would have fucking thrown my entire comic book collection on a window. <laughs> there might have been a bonfire burned that it, night. Yeah. <laughs> I would have destroyed everything. I would have burned down this world. <laughs> and taken a shower afterwards. <laughs> Got my own gas mask and hunted down the writer and put him to sleep. Oh, well... <laughs> Which I, I barely even talked about this, but just the gas gun. This is a beautiful, elegant weapon, and it's like you puff a smoke, and then the guy's out. And I, I, I love how uh, kind of. I mean, it's obviously intrusive. Like it's it's a weapon, <laughs> but it's it's almost it's very nonviolent. It is. But at the same time, I don't know. Later in the series, it does kill someone. <laughs> he gasses somebody who has like a heart condition, and they die. Whoopsie. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good intentions got awry there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, again, just a you know, cool series, good character, great characterizations, and that's it. That's all. Very well done. The end. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to go ahead and read Neil Gaiman's summation on the cover. Yeah. A remarkable examination and evisceration of American pulp tradition. Yeah, exactly. That's Why didn't I look at that earlier? <laughs> That's rambling on for an hour and uh, just go to Neil Gaiman. He knows what's up. <laughs> well, because it's, a, it's a good book, you know, and you got to appreciate a good story. Yeah. There's a good character. and yeah, They're all good characters. Even Burke, that piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be a good time going back to them and getting yeah. to know them better. But, oh, you mentioned earlier about adaptations, which I've completely lost that thread. Fuck. Wesley Dodds has shown up in a few things. Uh, he was on an episode of Smallville. Oh. And there's an episode of Smallville. There's two episodes called Absolute Justice. It's all about Clark uh, running into the JSA. And the only surviving members are 
Star Spangled Kid, Hawkman, Stargirl, Doctor Fate, and Sandman. The opening of the episode has Star Spangled Kid get murdered by uh, Icicle, an old villain. And then the next shot is Wesley Dodds, like, sitting in his apartment, sucking down coffee, trying to stay awake because of, you know, his prophetic dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he realizes that Icicle is coming for him, so he, like, gears up real quick, turns to the camera with a Sandman outfit on, and just as you see the lens of his gas mask, like, ice over. Then when Clark finds him, he's dead, and he's, like, on the ground, stabbed, and he wrote JSA in his own blood to get Clark on the trail of the Justice Society. Smallville had a lot of issues. Smallville was objectively not a great show. But Absolute Justice was a fucking awesome mini-movie about the JSA. They did it proud, huh? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was really well done. Um, especially, you know, for a TV budget ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly well done. But that, that's his only live-action appearance. He's shown up in a couple animated series here and there. There's actually an episode of The Flash TV show from the 1990s. The one that starred John Wesley Shipp that introduced a very Wesley Dodds-like character, this dude named Nightshade, who was a superhero that wore a gas mask and a fedora and a jacket and had a knockout gun. <laughs> and it was just very... And he was like an old-timey hero. He was like a Golden Age hero that um, was retired now and Flash was teaming up with. Very clearly supposed to be Sandman, but for whatever reason, he wasn't Sandman. But that those Flash episodes, I think it's two episodes, and put together it's called Deadly Nightshade, that, that makes for a pretty good Sandman movie. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it would, be, uh, it would be intriguing to see them adapt it now, just the series itself. I had an idea once of adapting it, just like really diving into the ugliness of society at the time and changing Diane to Dan Belmont and having Wesley and Dan be gay. Oh, okay. And like, you know, closeted gay men solving murders in the 1930s. That would be cool. Yeah. Then if you do that, then you lose the kind of female point of view that Diane brings to the story. You do, but you know, I think a good writer can supplant that somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it, and it could, I mean, it, it would just be swapping one, one thing for another. Like, it would be swapping the, the interesting character of Diane as a female for an interesting Dan as a man, you know, like a gay man. Both of those would have very interesting points of view about that time <laughs> in the world. Just that, that's where my mind went with it for some reason, just thinking about how I haven't, I haven't seen that, you know. I've seen um, Nick and Nora Charles, <laughs> which is what Wesley and Diane are. They're just the thin man characters, you know. They are. Um, That's a good way to describe them. Um, so I've seen that, but I haven't seen, you know, like a couple of gay sleuths in the 1930s dealing with societal oppression and serial killers. Right, yeah. <laughs> the Nick and Nat Charles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just think that would be cool. But that's, I mean, I'm not expecting that or even pushing it. I just think that would be a fun story. It would be fresh. Yeah. So other than that, no news on adaptations or anything like that. I think for the majority of comicdom, this series has just kind of been forgotten. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, hardcore Vertigo fans like me probably love it, but overall, I don't think anyone cares. So this isn't a character that's... Producers are getting shoved scripts. of like, make a fucking Wesley Dodds movie! Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've kind of got their hands busy with, uh, with other stuff, so to Well, we've, we've committed... You know, uh, an entire nation's GDP to finishing the fucking Snyder Cut, so... Ay, 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 yeah, yeah. Soon all media will just be the Snyder Cut. <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. Every adaptation of everything will just be the Snyder Cut. 
The Snyder Cut and Disney are going to merge together, which they probably already have in some way. It's happening. <laughs> Mickey Snyder. Mickey Snyder. Oh, boy. Oh boy. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> I, just, I, I fucking I hate talking about that, but I've, I can't get away from it. Yeah. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame you. It's like that annoying scab that you can't stop scratching. Yeah. Anyway, don't let Zack Snyder get his hands on Sandman. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Wesley Dodds would show up in the... No, he won't. In the in the Neil game or in the Netflix adaptation of Sandman, it's like I wonder if Wesley does a show, but no, he he would not. No, you don't think so? No. Not even like a little hint, hint. No, probably not. It doesn't. It's not needed in that story. Mm-hmm. But that was one thing about the audio drama. Also, I'll go back to you for a second. You know, in that first volume, Preludes of Nocturnes, Preludes and Nocturnes of Sandman, there's a brief shot of Wesley Dodds. It kind of ties the two stories together and says, you know, Wesley Dodds had bad dreams. Blah blah blah. That segment in the audio drama is drawn out a bit more, and you actually hear Wesley Dodds like stop a mugging. Oh wow! And with his like, you know, he's like, ah, that's the Sandman. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> you okay, ma'am? <laughs> it's just fun to hear that because Wesley Dodds has probably like a five-minute scene where he gets to be a superhero <laughs> in the audio adaptation. Well, see, that's nice. There you go. Good add-on. So yeah, there. That's his latest adaptation, <laughs> <laughs> Sandman Mystery Theater. The entire seventy-issue run plus one annual is uh, jammed into uh, like four and a half minutes of uh, of dialogue in the uh, Sandman audio drama. Very compressed. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need to know. All right, what are we gonna do next? I have no fucking clue. That is a very good question. I've been wanting to dive into Transmetropolitan. Are you ready for that? No, I'm not <laughs> at all. Okay, okay. I actually recently concluded that series. Not reading it. I've only read the first volume, actually. Um, but I, I have the whole series now. Oh, good. Yeah. Issue one was a bitch to track down for a reasonable price. Really? Yeah. I paid more than I wanted to for it, <laughs> but uh, cheaper than I've seen it. Are you comfortable saying how much? I honestly don't remember. It, it, it was like probably five or six months ago, but I was I was able to find. It was probably like sixty bucks. Oh wow! Maybe I can't remember. <laughs> Still, that's scout. Yeah. Okay. But it, I've seen it for one hundred fifty. I've seen it for more than that. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, I tracked down. I finally have that entire series in single issue, but I'm not ready to dive into it yet because I want to want to commit. Okay. But I I don't know. I don't know what. Anything else on your radar? We could do Preacher. We could do... Um... One thing I was thinking of, I was actually thinking this a few weeks ago, um, Dangerous Habits. Oh, yeah. Have you read any of Hellblazer? Um, no, honestly. <laughs> but uh, I do remember you talking about that in previous episodes, and I would like to read it. Okay. You don't need to know a whole lot. Yeah, Maybe, maybe just some Googling about the character to, to understand, but... Uh, or to, to get up to speed. But I, I think that would be a fun one to read, because it's pretty self-contained. Let's do that, then, because you said that was a very impressionable issue for yeah. you. Well, it's like four issues, but yeah. <laughs> four issues, okay. Um, <laughs> and then you want to do another commentary? Yes. What should that be? So here's my list of Vertigo movies. Oh, here we go. V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. The Kitchen, Tank Girl, Road to Perdition, Swamp Thing, Return of the Swamp Thing, History of Violence, 
The Losers, LXG, <laughs> The Fountain, Django Unchained, The Invisible Man, question mark? Because of the nobody. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Fury Road, and then The Death and Jonah Hex shorts. Oh, that's a hard... I kind of want to do LXG. <laughs> <laughs> what is LXG? Leave it and gentlemen. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, let's do that. I've been seeing that on Amazon Prime lately, and I'm like, oh, I should rewatch that. <clears throat> All right, so yeah, let's let's. I think we've got a direction moving forward. So we do. Sounds good. All right, well, what do we say at the end? We say, we say, we say, we say, we, we did it. We got to the end of the show. <laughs> we this is as, it always goes like this at the end. We say the same thing every time, which is doing good. Doing good. Doing good. Uh, uh, fucking, where did I put the, There we go. End of the show. <laughs> I, I know that was a pretty smooth transition, but I was um, feverishly scrolling through my notes. Um, like and subscribe. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Vertigo Voices. Instagram, just Vertigo Voices. I always, I always, I always there's a question. Is this Vertigo Voices? At Vertigo Voices, yeah. Has the name of the show changed? Uh, you can email us, vertigovoices at gmail.com. Do you want us to talk about something specific? Let us know. Or don't. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> just keep those streaming numbers up, folks. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to listen. Just fucking download it. <laughs> Do us a favor. <laughs> and still no special thanks because we still don't have a theme song. I've put out some feelers and discussed with some people about theme songs and was told, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'll get right on that. And it was like three weeks ago. So <laughs> well, there you go. That didn't is... think it would be that hard to get a 10-second spot for this. <laughs> well, like I said, I was working out something on the xylophone, but I think, you know, you just keep adding new dimensions to our theme song every the week. slide whistle. Ooh. <laughs> So you're going to work on that for next week, then. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, keep a, a loop. So, yeah, listen to the Sandman audiobook and read Sandman Mystery Theater. Yeah. And uh, don't watch the Snyder Cut. <laughs> yes, please. Please. <laughs> give that man, he doesn't deserve a single cent of money right now. <laughs> right. Every time you watch a Zack Snyder movie, like a book burns itself. I don't know. <laughs> hey, I like Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> Dawn this of the is like, I don't hate all of his work. I just hate what he's doing now. <laughs> I don't hate all of his work either, but it's just, I'm sorry to say that I just feel like what he is doing now just eclipses what he's done in the past. <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is, I, I haven't watched Family Guy in probably a decade, but I remember a joke from it. There was over there, they say something about Skeet Ulrich. I remember, like, they say something, somebody says something about Skeet Ulrich, and then it cuts to Cleveland, like, getting up in Skeet Ulrich's face going, there's nothing good about who you are or what you do. <laughs> <laughs> that seems applicable. <laughs> so he's... <laughs> I'll say it one more time, and on that note. <laughs> keep reading, keep talking shit about Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.